The Hypnotic Hiker presents Nature, the Drug of Choice. Hypnotic trips, if you will, virtual hiking experiences, mind trips that offer a shift in perspective. Basically, these are a series of guided journeys that take you back to your true self. In these episodes, you'll discover the true power of your unconscious mind and how to change old outdated programs from birth that have kept you stuck. You'll enjoy some virtual hikes, some hypnosis, divine interventions. You'll learn walking meditations. By the way, I've been a clinical hypnotherapist since 2002. We'll explore the importance of staying connected or reconnecting to your wild child, to be in touch with our primitive minds, our instincts. We'll talk about how the modern world has tried to change us into cogs of a machine. I'll dive into mass hypnosis and the concept of transhumanism. We'll even explore regenerative ranching and agriculture. The most important discovery you'll have is how to lose your shadow self and how to love yourself again, standing on your own two feet and thinking from your heart mind and speaking with your true voice. I'm Valerie, the Hypnotic Hiker. Since I started this podcast, I've promised an episode on regenerative ag. But before we can talk about that, we really need to talk about regenerative humans, free-range humans. There really are more and more people returning to this natural way of life. It's been happening for some time. And Brian Alexander of Ranching Reboot is one of the ones who is leading the charge here. I kind of call him a maverick, although he probably would deny that. Hopefully we can have him on in a future episode. But he's hosted hundreds of guests, including the guest we have today, Dr. Alexander. And he's focused on ways to return the land, he's a rancher, um, to its natural state that's best for all humans, animals, plants, the soil. Our guest today is Dr. Victoria Alexander. She is a farmer, a shepherdess, a doctor of philosophy, a biosemiotician, a novelist, and an instructor at IPAC EDU, an online school focused on rethinking traditional higher learning. Dr. Alexander, welcome to The Drug of Choice. Hi, Valerie. Thanks for having me on. Um, please call me Tori since we know each other well enough, I think. We know each other very well, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> Should we tell them? Valerie's my sister. <laughs> She's my sister. Okay. And Valerie also introduced me to the Ranching Reboot podcast and that connection with Brian Alexander. And I, I was on twice um, because I, I guess he doesn't have that many philosophers on his <laughs> oh, show. And, and there's no of. relation. He's not our brother. No. Although, you know, uh, Scottish family. So somewhere back there. Somewhere. We, Let's begin by talking about what you mean by free-range humans. Did you coin that term? I guess I did, but I bet okay. you other people have have yeah. used it. Okay. Um, well, you know, it seems like humans are domesticated animals, and we're not self-sufficient. We're being taken care of by the system, so we're not free-range humans. Initially, I had thought about the prison system in the United States 
how we have a disproportionate number of people locked up compared to the rest of the world. And I do compare that to if you're locked up in a cage, you know, or in a in a uh, system where you're not able to think for yourself and to take responsibility for your own well-being and health and everything, then you're not free range and you you lose a lot of opportunities to learn and to grow um, on your own. To interrupt, we're not talking about people that are buying ranches and homesteading free range. We're just talking about people being able to make their own decisions, to use creativity, to look at the environment around them and make their own decisions about what's best for, for them. Is that what you're... Yeah, and being able for, for all the individuals in a system, on a farm, in a community, in a country, if we're all able to make our own decisions, the whole system is so much more intelligent. And so that's where, how philosophy of science comes into that. I'll tell you how I got started on this topic. A colleague of mine asked me to appear on a panel together with a couple of other people whom I respect for a conference in Berkeley in 2017, I think it was. And so I agreed to be on the panel without asking what the topic was. Because um, <laughs> Berkeley sounds so great. I yeah, it was a great conference. <laughs> and so the topic was, was biosemiotics and food. Now, biosemiotics is the study of communication in, in biological organisms below the level of consciousness, mostly. The way cells communicate with each other, the way plants can communicate with fungus and and so forth, and the way bacteria send out signals that um, the host organism can pick up. So I didn't know what to make of the idea of biosemiotics and food, because food is dead. It's not a living system. There's no but communication I, going on, right? After, after Yeah, no, not much communication. Okay. And so, but then I thought, well, I'm a farmer. I grow a lot of my own food and I can talk about the semiotic relationship that I have, of course, with my animals and they with me, but my animals also with each other and with the surrounding environment. And I had never applied my professional life in, in biosemiotics to do anything that I did with farming. You know, those, those lives weren't, <laughs> weren't the same. They were completely different. And then I, when I looked at it more and more, I realized, oh, okay, I am being a biosemiotician when I'm farming too. Yes. Love that. I will say that the area that I focus on most in philosophy is the area of creativity and intelligence, trying to determine what that is exactly. And for decades now, people working in the philosophy of science have understood that intelligence is never centralized, like we like to think of it with an executive at the top making decisions, telling all the lower lower orders what to do. Even in the brain, it doesn't work that way. It's really our entire body, all the cells in our body are communicating with each other and together they work to create intelligent actions. And so um, we can apply that to how, you know, if we look at farming, 
I looked at my farm, is my farm intelligent? And is if so, what are the individual actors on the farm, you know, the sheep, the chickens, the plants doing with each other to develop a farm that is intelligent and healthy and self-sufficient and can kind of run itself and doesn't need the, you know, the farmer making all the decisions, applying all these pesticides, pulling out all the weeds, you know, telling all the animals where to go and what to do <laughs> and everything. So, um, they don't like that. No. Yeah. I have a, I have a new sheep. Her name is Teddy cause she looks like a teddy bear. Oh. She's this type of sheep that um, grows fur on her face. Oh. And so she has in a, the, she gets so furry, she can hardly see out and I've got it, but she looks like a bear. So she's named Teddy oh. bear. And she has all sorts of different ideas about where she's going to go. And she is taller than the rest of the sheep. And so she's able just to step over the stone walls that oh, I've no. made around the house. Okay. And so I've got to raise those stone walls this, um, this week oh. about 12 inches. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. But is she going to grow taller? Is that it? No, no, she's, she's full height now, but, uh, and she likes to, to browse on the, you know, ornamental plants that I have around the house. And yeah, so there's like some things, some restraints that you have to put in place. We can't let these animals, like I don't let my chickens in my garden, they have to stay out of the garden. Um, and I have a fence around the perimeter of my property to keep the foxes out pretty much. Sometimes they dig holes underneath the fence, so I have to watch that. But <clears throat> that is, to me, the role of the farmer is just to provide the sort of things that animals need so that they can help themselves. Some small protections. Right. I built them a barn, right. so they have some place to go when it rains and in the winter time and I give them hay but mostly they just take care of themselves and that's what you want and you eventually we need to get to the point where we're haying our own fields so that we don't have to buy hay right and with five acres we actually have enough room if we would just have to manage the sheep um, better keep them locked out of certain past um, pastures and then move them allow the grass to grow mow it and then and while you're listening to ranching reboot because his guests tell you how to do that <laughs> yes yeah yeah we do we do rotate them so that they are not on the same pasture for more than 10 days when i read your paper free range humans um a couple of years ago i believe it was i was so struck by the story of your blind chicken sydney and i think she is a perfect example of what you called innovation on the farm. Uh, let's, let's listen to, to you tell the story of Sydney and how, how we need to be more like Sydney. Yes, Sydney is uh, quite a story. I found her one day, I was out working in the yard and I noticed a chicken was kind of hunkered down and not moving very much. And you just notice that out of the corner of your eye, I didn't even take it in consciously, but a few moments later, I, I noted that she hadn't moved yet. And it's interesting, there's something about being, having this relationship with your animals, right away you can sense when there's something wrong. Yes. And so I walked over to her and I found that she, her eyes had been pecked out or they'd been, you know, it was, her eyes yeah. were bloody and they were closed. 
And apparently this happens with other, she was very young and some of the older hens okay. must have gotten to a fight with her. And I found out later from an experienced farmer that that's what roosters are for. They break up hen fights apparently. So now we always have a rooster. I think I but, need to get me one of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, be prepared to listening to the the crowing at all hours of the day and night. They my, don't. My neighbors have them, so I, I already hear that. So I might as well just have the benefit of the rooster. <laughs> okay. yeah. So my son, I don't know how old he was at the time, maybe 10 or something. He really turned into Sydney's hero and took it upon himself to take care of her brought food to her in a bowl so that she could, you know, peck around and kind of hit the bowl mm -hmm. and then discover, okay, that's where the food is. Mm -hmm. And so we um, kept her in kind of confined areas that were small enough where she could walk around and, and run into the bowl. And then the areas kept getting bigger and bigger and she would learn this sort of oh. map of her pattern of her area and she knew where to go. So she was confined to an area eventually of about an acre um oh that's that a really nice could wander yeah. around in and we also put a little uh coop that was too small for really any use it's one you know the first time that you go into chickens you you buy the coop from tractor supply that looks so cute and is utterly useless it's ridiculous right <laughs> <laughs> but so she would run into that coop sometimes and and then she knew that she could find the door and that's where her food is or she could go to take shelter from the rain. So she she learned quite a bit. And the fantastic thing about Sydney was that she became very vocal and communicated with us vocally. I know that the, the chickens communicate with each other. They have different calls. Um, they have a call for uh, a hawk overhead. If they see a shadow flying around, they make a noise for that. That's different for the noise that they make when a fox comes on the property. Mm, interesting. And it's different from the announcement that I've just laid an egg. Yeah. <laughs> um, which, you know, and I've learned to recognize those different calls and I know yeah. when to run out of the house. Yeah. Yeah. You know? But so they communicate with each other vocally, but I've never had a chicken talk to me mm. vocally. And she learned our voice, you know, we'd go out and we'd start calling Sydney, Sydney, and she would answer us with a, with a very musical, maybe she was imitating our Sydney, where are you? Mm. Da, 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 da. She would have this visit, uh, this very uh, musical phrase. Sometimes we couldn't, we'd hear her calling back and we didn't know where, so we'd call and we'd kind of go Marco Polo back and forth until we found each oh. other. And so it, it's just sometimes when you have a disabled animal, it it's just brings this, you know, incredibly interesting and joyous experience. So it, farmers don't need to be too quick to, you know, cut cut the head off that chicken and eat it. Yeah, for, right. You know, because there's some. Or, or cage them, you know. Or, or cage them, them for her own protection. So here's the fantastic thing that she ended up doing have grape vines growing on the fence line and there's kind of a wire mesh on the fence she must have been going too fast at some point and she hit up against the fence 
And at the time we had these Japanese beetles, which really go for those grapevines. And, and if you knock the fence, they kind of fall off very easily. So we saw her out there one day throwing her breast up against the fence <laughs> and hitting the wire and those little um, oh. beetles were raining down and then she'd, you know, quickly peck around and she'd find one or two. And we don't know, you know, maybe she had done that initially and got some grapes off too. Maybe some grapes fell down. Saw her doing that and started imitating her. So we had all these hens throwing themselves up against the <laughs> fence, eating the Japanese beetles. And so that took care of two problems. Our chickens got fed. Yes. And yes. the the grapevines were saved. And I always say that every solution has to solve at least two problems, maybe three, preferably three, mm -hmm. and cause no additional problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when you, instead, if you don't let uh, the problems get solved on their own by the animals and the plants interacting with each other, because that's what animals and plants are. They're, they're problem-solving creatures. That's what they do. They find solutions and in, in new innovations. If you try to do that from a top-down perspective with pesticides or caging or whatever, mm -hmm. you are not, um, you know, taking advantage of these things that are offered to you. And, you know, inevitably, you're going to cause some other problem. There will be a side, unintended side mm -hmm. effect of whatever you're trying to do. You know, certainly with pesticides, we found that there are unintended side effects. Right. Yeah, mono monoculture crops, mm. monocrops, I guess they're called. What is the right term for that when they just plant corn, for example? Yeah, yeah, monocrops, mono all the tops, and, and uh, it, it depletes the soil really quickly because... Mm -hmm. And attracts pests. It attracts pests. But, but we, we, we don't want to say anything bad about those farmers that are that are now uh, kind of stuck doing that <laughs> have a whole lot right. of choice. They've been, they've been encouraged by the system mm -hmm. to, you know, plant corn every year. And the solution to that is chemical fertilizers, mm -hmm. but chemical fertilizers don't interact with the soil in the same way. Uh, I have a friend who is working with, um, was it activated charcoal, which apparently a lot of the indigenous people used. Mm -hmm. And when you put that in the soil, it absorbs the excess nitrogen and then releases it as needed. So you don't have the runoff problem of too mm -hmm. much nitrogen from a fertile, from a chemical fertilizer running into the, the, um, the water system. And, and that's an example where the humans were, looking at how they could interact in a in an intelligent way with the environment to solve a problem and to solve two or three problems and not create any new ones so it's not like humans are you know unnatural in their environment as long as we are part of and work with our environment and listen to it and observe then we too can do intelligent thing you know i think about people that are in the system, um, cogs of the machine, and are doing these jobs that they must do in order to to survive. But in in a way, they're benefit of free range humans. 
there are so many people that are in purposeless jobs that lack creativity and you're affecting their their health and in many ways their happiness you're in a job where you're not able to make decisions about how to do that job well and you have to take all your orders from the top yeah and just you know you might as well be a machine if you're you know, I, I, I think there's some people who kind of want that they they don't know maybe they've just lost their creativity they're so used to the institutions school etc um, telling them what to do but how can someone that is in a job like that working for a large company how can they become a little more free range how can they shift a little of their personal life so that they can be um, more balanced I don't know. I think that a cultural revolution is needed. I, uh, when I was at, I was at the Santa Fe Institute studying complex system science, um, which was my, you know, where I, where I, uh, um, learned this philosophy of, you know, decentralized intelligence. At the time, there were many businesses and corporations who were interested in learning about how the best organized companies were those who got a lot of feedback from their employees and you had profit sharing with the employees and so I forth. Remember that. And the role of man management became really just uh, interacting with the people who were on the ground doing the day to day things and had so much information to offer about what was really going on in the company. Mm -hmm. But you can imagine that after a while, the corporate leaders would think, hey, maybe this isn't such a good idea if everybody is, you know, if the best companies are run with cooperating with all of the employees and, and you know, getting feedback from uh, the people on the ground, too. It seems like corporate yeah. funding of that kind of research dwindled oh interesting so i wonder why yeah <laughs> it became top down right yes so if people are making the decisions about what kinds of philosophies and practices are pursued if they're going to put themselves out of a job or their job is going to seem less important if they promote this idea of decentralized intelligence so they're smart enough to realize not to <laughs> not to make their own uh, position obsolete. I, I remember in the 90s when I was working in advertising, um, I don't know what was happening, but at some point our, the staff and I realized that people were so afraid to say what they were thinking they stopped being creative they stopped thinking out of the box and they just became uh, they started following um, the directive so i don't know if that coincides with where you were but it was in the 90s when that happened and it was very unfun to work with them because we, you couldn't come up with those creative ideas that really worked you had to be so safe fly under the radar everything well, marginalized i guess is the word mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Companies always claim that they're looking for creative, independent workers, but in reality, they aren't willing to, you know, allow people to make mistakes. And it's only through making mistakes that you learn something. So in oh. fact, everybody should be encouraged to make a few mistakes. And we can say that when Sydney ran into that wire, she made a mistake. Oh. She might have thought that she was picking up a grape when she grabbed a beetle because mm -hmm. they're about the same size. So she made that mistake. So if you're only going on, you know, the sort of algorithms that you've already learned and things that you've been told, the correct things that you've been told to do, and you never make any mistakes, you will never find a new way to do something. So all businesses should be prepared to absorb some of the, the things that might, you know, the negative effects of mistakes. Businesses, you know, want to eliminate all error. And if you eliminate all error, then you also eliminate creativity because right. that's where creativity comes from. Tell everyone um, about your farm. Like how many acres, where is it? How many animals you have? What do you grow? So, yes, I have, I'm two hours north of New York City by train. So it's very convenient. You can walk from the train station here. And I have five acres very close to town, which is amazing because I can walk or ride my bike to the farmer's market or to the, the local school here. And my town is just one, one stoplight. Yeah. So it's a town of what, 2000? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's tiny and um, I'm right on the outs, outside of the water uh, zone, you know, the, the, and so I'm very, very close to town. So having a five acre property that close to town is, is, is really very cool. Yes. It is an old farmhouse that was probably built sometime in the 1750s. Mm. So it's older than the country. Um, mm. it, it may have been a goat shed, not a house. Mm. <laughs> you live in a goat shed. <laughs> and we of course awesome. renovated it. All of it is really being used for, to, for the sheep and the garden. The sheep get to go everywhere. You ha we have to have a gate on the driveway because the whole area is where they, they eat everything. So we don't have to do any mowing. And, and we have a garden that's maybe a half an acre. And I do canning, um, or it should be called jarring. I use the glass jars. And I usually preserve about 200 every year. Wow. I'm doing a lot of uh, fermenting. I ferment uh, sauerkraut. I make sauerkraut and asparagus is good and, and um, pickles. And we love that fermented food that we eat all year. And so I, I really don't need to go to the grocery store. We, all, we also eat the, the male rams, the, the rams when they're about um, almost a year old. Okay. And sometimes we sell the females. Um, we've we've started the idea around in our community of using animals to keep your pasture down instead of mowing. Mm -hmm. So many people here yeah. have like five acres that they mow every week. Mm. It's just insane that you're using all that um, fossil, all the fossil fuels, and you're not getting right. anything out of it. You're just contributing to more 
um, pollution. Whereas we have our lawn perfectly manicured at yeah. every moment. It looks wonderful. They, we, we plant ornamental plants that they don't like, like certain kind of herbs, and they manicure around them. Oh, nice. <laughs> so we, we slaughter about three, uh, three uh, animals a year. Um, we're going to start trying to do uh, roosters this mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. and and vegetables and we really don't need anything at the store other than avocados avocados and bananas <laughs> and things like that yeah 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 so it's great i feel i feel very safe because of this also one of the ideas that i had when i first started thinking about writing about my you know work i do as a farmer is Someone in the community at a community organization was talking about food security mm -hmm. and how important it was that everybody had access to a grocery store within a few miles that had fresh produce. And I thought, grocery store? <laughs> how about like in the during the First World War when the government um, encouraged everybody to plant victory gardens and grow their own vegetables? How about for food security, people learn to put in potatoes and cabbage. Potatoes are super easy to grow. You get a lot of food from it and they, you can keep them all winter. And the same with um, cabbage, mm -hmm. it's very easy to preserve it for the winter. So mm -hmm. if you want to talk about food security, um, plan, plan a little garden, just, you, you know, get started. Can, can you grow potatoes in a, a large pot, you know, out on your patio? If someone didn't have access to land, could they grow ahead of a couple I, of I hear a lot of people in potatoes? Manhattan grow potatoes on their fire escape. Why not? Why not? Of course, yeah. every building has um, a, a rooftop. There should be a lot more. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and also, if you have a lot of... Uh, plants growing on your rooftop that absorbs a lot of the solar radiation and keeps the mm -hmm. roof cooler yeah. during the yeah. summer and it's nice to get fresh fresh vegetables yeah we need to you know what what are cities going to do if our supply lines uh, fail because we're starting to sense that that kind of thing is possible now yes yes so what are cities going to do if every every single building had a rooftop garden, wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah, they could. Well, it's going into but, summer here in North Texas, and my romaine lettuce is starting to suffer. I harvested about six very large heads of romaine, but you know those aren't going to those don't continue. It's kind of a funny feeling because I haven't been to the grocery store in probably eight weeks. Um, but I just won't eat romaine lettuce. I'll eat something else. So switch, switch to kale during right. the Yes, I have kale and collards. And so what, what is your, what is the easiest vegetable to grow in your opinion? And you're, you're upstate New York, so it's a different zone. Potatoes and green beans. Yeah. Okay. Also butternut squash. Okay. I often have about 30 big butternut squash. And they will, the last one uh, we eat in April or so, they, they last that long and kind of 
cool environment, maybe 45 degrees or so in the cellar. They'll mm -hmm. last that long. I'd like you to share some of the other projects you're involved with. I'm a novelist as well as a philosopher of science and something that I've been working on for years now and is just about complete is a collection of short stories that illustrate, you know, and I haven't written about Sydney yet. I think I probably will. Yeah, you need to. I'm going to do that this afternoon. Um, <laughs> stories that illustrate this idea of intelligence, you know, coming from your interactions with others. And that can even be on a cellular level. Your cells communicate with each other. Um, and so I, I want to, it's sometimes people are not, don't learn as well through science or nonfiction. So if I can tell these, uh, if I can share my science through stories, I think that that would be really helpful. So I've got a collection that's inspired by the novelist Vladimir Nabokov. And it's called Chance That Mimics Choice, which gets at the idea that we were talking about earlier. When you make mistakes, it actually helps you do intelligent things and learn more. So Chance That Mimics Choice, it's like you made this mistake intentionally in order to uh, discover something new and, and to come up with a yeah. new invention. So that's what I'm that. working on now, okay. mostly. Talk very briefly, if you can, about dopamine. In, in our modern day today, our dopamine um, reward system has, has been hijacked by all these false kind of reward systems that we have where we get likes on posts or we get payment, you know, money for doing good things or we get, you know, congratulations. We get this reward system that's arbitrary and artificial. If you are interacting with the real world, with your real customers, face-to-face, -face, you're serving people that say thank you for the goods that you offer, and you have this more of this community-oriented economy instead of working for a big company. You feel that you, you get that dopamine reward system, and it, you have a much more of a satisfying life you feel more fulfilled. And uh, that's the kind of experience that you that you have when you allow people and animals to to make their own decisions and interact with each other in a, in a healthy, purposeful way. I think this idea about rewards, reward systems and artificial reward systems relates to your one of your themes of the podcast is the nature is the drug of choice. Because you you literally are, every time we have this dopamine reward system that is based on doing purposeful activities. Whenever we accomplish something like plant, weed a, weed a field and plant things, we step back and we look at our work. And you know how enjoyable that is. Yes. You've, you've experienced that before where you just sit there and look at your hard work. That's dopamine. And that's, that's the reward that you get when you do some sort of activity. And when you do strenuous activities and you get reward, that makes you want to do that again. And it's one of the things that helps us 
gives us the motivation to get out there and, and do some work, usually to get food. But that dopamine reward system has been co-opted by video games and Facebook likes, social media attention. And so it has oh, this boy. addictive quality that you seek out your dopamine hits in these artificial ways. And so that now you're depleted of your ability to uh, have that, to, to access that dopamine for things that you really need. And, and so it, it really does help to get out in, in nature and do something physical to get that dopamine reward. So you literally, you know, nature, working in nature and, and getting something accomplished really is kind of like a drug, but a healthy one. I created that hypnotic hiker and the hypnotic trip by chance um, to, to piggyback on your concept. Um, but it was during COVID when I couldn't see clients that I um, started realizing how hiking was so much like hypnosis. And from that came some group hiking experiences. So sometimes when, when we're um, under pressure, when, when things are, uh, swirling around us and evolving is a good time to you know create something new. I couldn't just sit back and watch uh, COVID happen around me without finding a solution to keep my business going. Yeah, well, they do say that necessity is the mother of invention. So a lot of my Facebook friends that I went to high school with are planting gardens. I, I see people posting pictures of tomatoes and oh, look at look at this plant, look at these flowers. So I think there's a certain number of people, I guess maybe just because it's spring, but they're, they're, they're kind of coming back to, to nature. Um, there's a great farmer's market here um, near me and Lucas, Texas. And, you know, you're talking about getting feedback and to talk to those farmers and those ranchers. And, and um, like my son said, he listens to that podcast too. Um, and he said, you know, mom, I'm going to shake your hand because, you know, we get eggs from you and I want to shake the hand of the farmer. Talking to these ranchers, get it's so emotional. I mean, I get, my eyes get watery when I'm like, they hand me this pork butt, you know, <laughs> I'm just like, and their their kids are there, and one of their children, one of their sons, was there getting coffee. And I'm like, "You seem really young to be drinking coffee. You must be a rancher." <laughs> he goes, "Yeah, <laughs> we have pigs." And I'm like, "Oh, I remember you from last time." He goes, "Yeah, you know, our whole family does it, and it was just it's just such the the most wonderful thing." So encourage listeners to find their local farmers market. Um, you know, and, and buy, buy local, pay cash. So many times, whenever I suggest that people start their own garden, you know, just plant some potatoes. That's the easiest thing to do in a pot if you have to. People will say, yes, well, you know, of course, everybody needs to have a, a their own garden, but it's just not convenient. It's not possible for somebody. Oh, come on. It is too. <laughs> like you Let me tell coffee. you about convenience. Convenience is when you're cooking and you look in the refrigerator, you're about to make dinner and there's <laughs> nothing there and you just run outside <laughs> and you get a whole bounty and you don't have to go to the store and talk about convenience. convenience. Yeah, very true. 
if anyone wants to hear more about the stories that I'm writing about intelligent nature or hear some of the lectures that I'm doing, I'm doing a lot of lectures these days talking about the difference between machine intelligence, so-called, and biological intelligence. Mm -hmm. uh, artificial intelligence is not intelligent at all. It's just mechanistic and it's not creative. Interested in learning more about those topics, you can go to my website for that. If Sydney was a robo chicken, would she have found those beetles? If you designed a robot to go around like a little Roomba or something, uh, <laughs> the yard, maybe it was designed to pick up a grape or something to go and eat grapes. It would have picked up the beetle and real, and it would have categorized that as not a grape and it would have discarded it and it wouldn't have eaten it. And so a machine isn't able to make the kinds of creative mistakes that living systems are able by mistaking something for something else. That's why machines can't learn on their own. They, the only thing that machines can do on their own is be able to more efficiently pick up grapes, but they can't find a new source of food or they can't come up with a new goal that it, they invent for themselves. And they would probably never learn to sing to me like Sydney did. Right. And that just brought a lot of joy to you and to your son as well. Right. That too. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Tori. We appreciate your time today. Thank you, Valerie, for this talk. It was really fun. <laughs>